You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Francine Prose, author of, and let me know if I get this correct, I think I'm right, 16 books of fiction and five books of nonfiction? That could be right, really. Do you not honestly? I do honestly not know. Uh, Your novel, A Changed Man, won the Dayton Literary Prize, and Blue Angel was a finalist for the National Book Award. Her most recent books of nonfiction include the highly acclaimed Anne Frank, The Book, The Life, The Afterlife, and the New York Times bestseller, Reading Like a Writer. Francine is a former president of Penn America Center and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Francine lives in New York City, and she joins us today in the HarperCollins studios to talk about her new book, Mr. Monkey, a novel, publishing by Harper on October 18th. Welcome. Thanks. So, Mr. Monkey is both the name of your book and the name of the musical production about a playful pet chimpanzee who is falsely accused of stealing a wallet, and that's that's the focal point of the plot. The musical is an adaptation of an old children's book, and it's the kind of story that sort of survives long past its prime, and this off, 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 off Broadway musical is somewhat ragtag, and some of the actors are a little bit ashamed to of their association with the show. And you tell the story of the production and the audience uh, reaction to the production through seemingly disparate characters, and then all of these characters' lives become uh, interconnected as the narrative unfolds. And doing so, you touch on a lot of different themes, everything from the theories of Charles Darwin and child-rearing philosophies. But for me, really, the book was about aging and love with ambition and regret kind of thrown in. <laughs> and I just want to read... As it so often is, right? <laughs> right? And I just want to read the... the you know, I, I usually select a couple pull quotes, uh-huh. but this I like this one the best. Um, John Guare, who's, you know, a, a distinguished playwright and the author of Six Degrees of Separation describes Mr. Monkey this way. Francine Prose has made something so original with Mr. Monkey, her dizzying Ferris wheel of a novel, that it boggles the lucky reader's mind. Besides making me laugh out loud, it's earned warmth and, yes, its effortless insight into the madness of the human hearts creates pure delight. Francine Prose's best novel. Thank you, John. (laughs) So what I did, you know, so... What I was doing as I started the book was I was I was thinking, oh my gosh, every time I I read something that made me laugh out loud, I'm gonna you know fold the page down and, and maybe I'll use it in the interview. And I abandoned that really quickly because I was folding nearly every page down. <laughs> it was so funny and so, but really so poignant. It's a little hard to describe the plot. I thought the best way to go into it was to sort of ask you to describe characters, and mm-hmm. then that will sort of get us to probably as much as we one would need to know without having read the book. So let's start with with Margot. So Margot is the character who opens the book, and she's 44. She's an actress. She went to Yale Drama School. She had big dreams about what her career was going to be like. Uh, she's actually very talented, and things 
as she says, there was no one spectacular incident that derailed everything, but it was one thing after another. And now she's found herself uh, as the lead actress in Mr. Monkey, this kind of heartbreaking off, 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 how many offs there can possibly be, children's musical, uh, playing the lawyer who defends the monkey from the trumped up charges of larceny of stealing a wallet, Hermes wallet. So, uh, so she was the one who sort of first grabbed my interest, and everything in the book is invented, but there's this one nugget of actual truth in it, which is that I took my granddaughter to oh. see an off-Broadway production of a off-off-off-Broadway production of a completely different play, a musical. And it was heartbreaking in the same way that the musical in the novel is. I mean, the actors' costumes were falling apart, the lighting... You know, the guy who was doing the lighting was obviously distracted, so the spotlight could hardly ever find the characters. And they could all sing, and they could all dance, and they could all act, but there they were in this play. And the other true thing that happened, actually there were sort of two more, was that my granddaughter was about five at the time. She's a very sensitive, aware child. She always has been. We both knew that we were watching something tragic happen, even though it was supposed to be funny. And, and at some point she said to me... Um, uh, Grandma, are you interested in this? And she thought it was a noisy moment in the play, but it was actually quiet, and everyone in the theater heard it, and she was mortified, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I said yes. So I feel that the whole book is actually this attempt not to have lied to her. I mean, I was interested, but not for the reasons the actors might have wanted me to. The last thing I wanted was anyone who was in that play to recognize themselves in these characters. So, so that meant I had to invent an entirely different play an entirely different book on which the play was based. So, the, And that was fun. I mean, you know, inventing a, an awful children's musical and not very good children's novel wasn't that hard. And then, you know, th and that was all I knew when I started. That was all I knew. And then it was as if the themes in the book or the, the recurring motifs in the book, they just kept kind of burbling to the surface and casting them. So, so of course, the minute you have... A monkey in the novel, or in this particular novel, and uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for the end of the sentence. Well, of you know, <laughs> when you have the monkey, yes. Well, then evolution begins to enter your mind, and and so on and so on. And and in this particular play that I invented, the actors have been forbidden to use or think the word evolution. So of course, the minute you're forbidden to think anything, it's the only thing you could think of. So so that came up, and then and then because of the pl the actual play i saw naturally themes like artistic failure and ambition and career came up and then the other true thing that happened was that after taking my granddaughter to see that play we went out to brooklyn where my son and daughter-in-law live and it just so happened as happens in the novel that they were having a dinner party for uh, other parents in the parents cooperative school that that my granddaughter was going to there i was you know the grandmother I didn't think of myself as that decrepit or, you know, useless, really. And But they treated me. I mean, obviously not my son and daughter-in-law, but the other parents as some ancient curiosity that was, you know. You, you say at one point you give a line to the grandfather where he comes in and, and basically says hello, and you say the response is like, a small child saying something terrifically intelligent, you know, and, yeah. and that yeah. was the way that they responded to the older person in the room. Yeah, they couldn't believe that I could actually talk, and, yeah. you know, make sense. On the other hand, I was noticing as the grandfather, I mean, of course, you know, the easiest way to disguise yourself right off the top is, is change the genders. So the grandfather in the novel 
um, notices that, and this was something about that I think is true, or I've noticed it, it's true about parent culture or family culture, and you know, especially in New York, but I'm sure in a lot of places, you know, anything I said that wasn't about the children or the school, you know, like have you seen a movie lately or read a book, yeah, it yeah. was like somehow subversive, and you know, I was threatening. Like, threatening. I was plotting yeah. revolution. How could I even think about? Life beyond the children. The children. So that went into the novel. And then the way the novel progressed was I would write a chapter and realize that I wasn't, for all sorts of reasons, didn't exactly want to stay with that person. Not that I wasn't interested in the person, but I just felt that the person had given me as much as that person had to give me. And then I would think, okay, who else am I interested in in this scene? So, for example, the second chapter is the little boy who plays Mr. Monkey. So, you know, I thought about his story. And also my granddaughter told me that um, her teacher, I believe her kindergarten teacher, had said to the class, uh, every night at 11 o'clock I take, take a sleeping pill. And I thought, <laughs> I thought this was, you know, this really was one of these situations where, you know, I've taught, so, I mean, I teach. And you think like, whoops, that was a yeah. little oversharing. So, so she became a character, etc., uh, etc., it is about love and loss, but even loss. Uh, Adam, you, you know, going through puberty, he he senses the loss. There, there's a line where he says, "Adam wants to weep." What happened to that cheerful kid? He's referring to himself in the very recent past. Where had he gone? And you're able to capture what I used to describe about my teenagers is when they would sort of spin off. And their mouths would be saying something, and you would look in their eyes, and you would see that they were sort of as surprised as you were, you know, because it <laughs> yeah, was just yeah, yeah, almost yeah, yeah. like consuming them. And and you, ca- I, that's how I felt about Adam was that these feelings, and then those feelings that drove these actions, were sort of just pulling him forward w- without any sense of control for for a while. And and that's what it feels like in the midst of puberty. And you caught that as effectively and as poignantly as the grandfather's love for his grandson, where I have to read where you said the force of the grandfather's love can never be returned because the child is who he is, because the grandfather is who he is, and because it would go against the natural of order for the child to be as obsessed with him as he is with the child. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the other side of, of whatever, the Leslie Stahl praise of grandparenthood is is that you can't, they're not yours. In they're a not way. yours. They're not yours. So there's only a certain amount. And, you know, the horror is that you leave the room and they forget you. I mean, it doesn't actually happen. And as they get older, it turns out really not to happen. But when they're four or five, you think, especially, I mean, I have to say, my grandchildren have very glamorous, interesting parents. So there's no way we can possibly. <laughs> right? You can't compete. <laughs> I know. You also have to say something uh, when they're going home from the play of the grandfather and, the, and Edward, the grandson, that it's it's almost like, they're on a first date, and he has to sort of keep the conversation going. Right, where you right. ask him a question, well, did you like it? You know, and it's that chat that you're having as you're walking away from the theater. Yeah, I mean, speaking of first dates, so then the, the kindergarten teacher goes on this horrific first date. And I don't know, maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler, but this, again, was based on something I saw, which was I was in a Japanese restaurant downtown, and I, there was a, clearly a blind date uh, next to me. And the young woman went off to the bathroom, and the guy, in in this case, called his friend. This was, I don't know, 15 years, 10, 15 years ago. So it was before people were texting as much as they do now or at all. And he called his friend who had set up the date and said, 
you know, this isn't going to work out, man, she's not that attractive, blah, blah, blah. Well, so, so I converted that experience to text. You know, he, he texts his friend, and she gets, well, I, what was it, like a couple months ago, I was watching this TV series called Love. Do you know this? Which I really liked. You know, like beautifully no, written, super no. beautifully written. Um, There's so many who can. I, I know. Yeah, no. I know. This one's really good, and uh, and that happens. He, you know, there's the same sort of you know first date texting mistakes. Or I thought this must happen all the time on first dates. It must be the new normal for first dates. Yeah, to you know. sort of check in midway. Check in midway. She probably went to the ladies' room and was talking to her friends. So. That happened 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Did you write it down? No. Did you you just remembered it? Well, it was so awful. You know, you tend to remember the things that you see that you're not supposed to have seen, that you Mm -hmm. wish you hadn't seen. And that was way up there. It was, you know, because then we had to sit at the table for the rest of this excruciating date with, obviously, the young woman not knowing what had just happened. And we knew. Right. So it was, you know, it seemed like a very long sushi dinner. But do do you keep a little notebook? I do, but you know, I every so often I I scribble things down, assuming that I will remember what it means. And and yesterday I was looking through one day before yesterday I was looking through one and, and it said, you know, blah blah a friend's story about blah blah lending him six hundred dollars. I had no idea what the story was, <laughs> so yeah, I do. But I I've, I've since learned, you know, to make it a little more detailed if I'm going to think I'm going to remember it. And you you move between fiction and nonfiction, mm-hmm. and you also so you write and you write about writing and you review and you teach. In your mind, is there a big difference between all of that? And if so, sort of how how do you keep it all straight? <laughs> it, it, I mean, seriously, it seems that you do so much work, and and the output is is so large and so wonderful. Like how how do you manage all of that? Well, I have to say. My husband does everything else. Okay. I mean, that's just that the helps. truth. Yeah, and, you know, helps, every so often, or not every so often, pretty often, he's been in an audience and someone's asked me some version of that question, and I've said, well, you know, I can write blah, blah, blah. And, and <laughs> he finally said to me, why don't you just tell them the truth? The truth is, you know, he likes doing the laundry, he does all the cooking, so I have a lot of, you, you know, a lot of time. Power. I have more I, brain that power. Makes sense, more time, which is really, you know, what it's about. And, and my teaching job... It's one semester, and it's one class, and it's a great job. I teach at Bard. I love it. I teach a literature class, and it takes up a lot of time during that semester. But because it's a literature class, it kind of feeds me rather than mm. is draining. I mean, I'm reading books that I love and teaching, talking about books that I love. I think of it as my little book group that I don't have to be yeah. democratic about the choices that, you know, we read. It's so all I'm, not asking, I'm not going to ask them. You know, like, oh, who's reading next? They know. So it doesn't really get in the way that much. I mean, it does happen that... You know, every so often, or fairly often, I'll be thinking about something, and then I'll get a review assignment that, for one reason or another, or a travel assignment that I don't want to or feel I can't turn down, and that, you know, will break my train of thought. Such mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've been doing it for so long now, uh, mm-hmm. and it's not as if my powers aren't diminishing by the moment. But still, I've sort of figured out kind of how to do it. You've so. figured out how to manage yeah. it. What the system is. Yeah. Who is your first reader? My husband. Yeah. And has that always been the case? Well, we've been married. We've been together 40 years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there were a couple of books, I think, before I met him, but I can hardly really remember that, what yeah. that's like. And he's a very good reader. He's a painter, and he's very visual. Mm. And if he hadn't been a painter, he could have been one of those guys that works in continuity in movies because yeah. he's the he one that will say. The eye for detail. Yeah. You've published for a long time, as you mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Tell me what continues to delight you 
and what frustrates you, whether that's something old or new. Because I, I think enough has changed that that folks who have published for a long time, mm-hmm. um, that answer might be different than when they first published. Well, it's still the process that's delightful. I mean, it's you know, with Mr. Monkey, for example, I it it never occurred to me that the book was going to have a happy ending. Actually, I didn't, you know, it just, I mean, I didn't know what kind of ending it was, but it was just not in my mind. I just said, I'm just going to write this. I mean, this this is the basic flaw in my, as they say, process, which is I don't know where it's going to go until I'm there. I mean, I don't have outlines. I don't have mm-hmm. much plans. So, uh, so I didn't know. And then I got like three chapters before the end, and I saw where it was going, and it had this, oh, and then also it sort of got, without my control, more and more excuse the word, spiritual, as mm-hmm. I was writing. I mean, there's, you know, all these kind of spiritual things started to happen, and suddenly there I was in this kind of spiritual, redemptive, happy, yeah, hopeful, right. extremely hopeful ending. And I went, wow, this is great. I didn't know that this was going to happen. So that's really the great pleasure. Everything else is kind of what you go through to get that, you know, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I you know the process. I, you know the process in a way is the same. The process, right? The writing same. process. You know the yeah. mechanics of publishing in a way. I mean that hasn't. I've been very fortunate. I mean I've had all the way through, not that many editors, but editors I've liked and editors who I felt were on my side, who were very good at what they did. So mm-hmm. you know I don't feel as I. You know that I've been cast into yeah, this tossed about nasty sea of commercial, corporate, you know, whatever. Corporate, baloney, blah, blah. yeah. And how about the cover process? I'm always curious how authors perceive and receive that whole process. I mean, I love, I love the cover for Mr. Monkey. I Isn't it great? So Isn't it great? I yeah. love it so much. The designers did a beautiful job. They sent me the cover, and it's you know this monkey stepping into the spotlight with a banana peel on the floor. He's about to slip. But, you know, it captured so much about the book, the f- the humor, the sense that you could slip on the banana peel in the spotlight. You yeah, know, blah, I thought blah. it got the tone exactly right. It got right. the tone exactly and right. And that's, that's, in my opinion, what you want the cover to do, right? You really want to oh, yeah. just grab it like that. And then the only thing was, when I showed it to my husband, he said, well, it doesn't do the spiritual thing. He says, the monkey needs a halo. So I... You know, I emailed back and said the monkey needs a halo, and they got it right away yeah. here. So they said, yeah. okay, so, you know, it took one, probably a keystroke to put a halo yeah, on yeah. the monkey. So now the monkey also has a halo. Yeah. Banana peel halo, that kind of is the whole thing, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there it is right there. You there it is. It That's right the book, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you're asked this all the time, but I'm going to ask it anyway. In your, do you have advice? Do you have encouragement? for those that hope to write? Well, you know, the things that people always say, just you keep doing it, you do it as much as you can. Um, I I also think, I think it, it is different for young writers now than it was Well, that, I think so, then. too. That's why I guess I was trying to, I mean, I know you've yeah. written an entire book about it, so I'm not asking you to... <laughs> well, no, not so much that as as I think the pressure to have a career is stronger than, I mean, we, you know, when, when I was young and coming up, being an artist and being a writer was considered very, you know, it was sort of taken for granted that you wouldn't make a lot of money right away and, and that you would have this sort of boho life and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the 80s happened and it's been like that ever since, where suddenly 
you know, one hears about young writers getting these million-dollar book advances, and I think that makes things quite different for 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 young writers. Also, the the growth of MFA programs makes things different. The course I'm teaching now is is called Strange Books, and um, oh, that sounds fun. It's fun. It's super fun, and and one of the reasons I'm doing it is because um, I say, you know, a lot of these writers on the list, Jane Bowles, Robert Falser, Einstein Kleist, you know, on and on, um, they couldn't have gone through the system the way it is, and they couldn't have gone through the right, found the right MFA yeah. program and the right agent and da-da-da. They were, you know, some of them were in institutions or, you know. So, yeah, so the, the fringes, point, yeah. yeah, so the point kind of is it's not a profession the way other professions are professions, it's something else. It's a calling, it's a vocation, it's being a kind of artist. Uh, and how do they receive that? They get it. Yeah. They get it. I mean, I you know, who knows if they still get it two years after graduation when they're up against it. Right. But at the time, it makes perfect sense to them. Right. All right, last question. Were you uh, to be banished to a desert island and you were allowed to take three books, what would you take? I would take the biggest anthologies I could find. There wouldn't be any one in particular that I would be able to read over and over for 40, 40 years. Although there are books I've read, you know, I've read Anna Karenina many, many okay. times. I mean, a book, it's like you have a relationship yeah. with it, the way you do with a person almost, and you it's keep true. going back to it, and it changes. You think it's one thing, and then you read it 10 years later, and it's something else completely, and you can only assume the book is hasn't changed, but you've changed. Yes. So, so you have this kind of progressive, different relationship with what you're reading. That you know, that's a better way to ask the question. It's sort of like, what are your books that you have a relationship with? Right. Because we all do. Right. I go back to the stories of Mavis Gallant. I just read them over and over and over. Yeah. Because I just keep hoping that something will rub uh, off. Will rub off on me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason. Well, thank you so very oh, much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for so Mr. Much Monkey, fun. and thank you for everything that you've written, and thank you for taking the time. It was a huge, huge pleasure. Thank you. Me too. Thanks, Anna Maria. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.